The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, uh, Vincent Signorella, who I have not seen in probably eight years. I think we were at some some kind of conference, I think, for the CMT Association when uh, we last chatted for a bit. But uh, Vincent, for those who are not familiar with your background, talk about who you are, how'd you get involved in markets, what's your specialty, and uh, how was it working at Bloomberg? Sure. Um, uh, from the beginning, I started trading FX and rates in 1982. So when people talk about, uh, is this Volcker's inflation, um, one of us at least is old enough to know it isn't. Um, I moved on from uh, trading a prop at a bank to trading at British Petroleum um, money markets and FX for them as well, and was part of their uh, acquisition of Standard Oil. Um, from there, they moved to Cleveland, and I did not. And I went on to become a general partner at ICE. Um, moved from there to go back trading for a bunch of years, um, and then went to work for the Wall Street Journal as a columnist and um, a lead blogger on their new um, venture at the time, um, which spoke directly to traders. And then I was recruited um, by the former um, head of uh, Bloomberg uh, Breaking News uh, to come to work for them. And it's been, let's see, nine years now. Um, and what I do now, if any of you have a Bloomberg terminal and if you have any interest, um, there's a product on the terminal called Squawk. And it's simply just SQUA Go. And there's a macro channel and an equity channel. And I speak to traders all day, both in IB and phone calls and whatever have you, uh, emails. Um, and I talk about markets all day and what I see, news coming out. Um, and so I'm monitoring Twitter, a variety of different news feeds, and basically just another pair of eyes and ears uh, for traders out there who don't have that much uh, real estate or can't use that much real estate up on their uh, on their screens. So that that part's been fun because it's it's kept me in touch with people in the market, um, and it's such a really high, fast pace part of the business being breaking news. It almost feels like trading again, which I'm really not allowed to do. So I, I, I get my joy, I suppose, uh, my kicks out of that. Um, and that's about it. Bloomberg's been, Bloomberg's kind of an up and down place, to be honest. Um, I was doing, um, hosting radio for a while uh, as a guest host. Um, but um, I, I guess as things go, I just couldn't spend that much time 
uh, four hours a day, five days a week on the odd occasion away from my uh, basically day job. So now I just do occasional hits, occasional radio. Um, and if you're in Canada, I do a regular piece at about 345 on Bloomberg Television every day. And that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's right. Okay, so so a few directions I want to I want to go with this. So first of all, you mentioned that you speak to traders with the the squawk, uh, these daily kind of squawk conversations. Uh, there's this impression out there, Vincent, that uh, traders have a better sense of what's going on, maybe than investors, because they have to have a shorter time frame and are actively trying to look for opportunities. Um, it seemed to me that this year it's almost like the exact opposite. That traders really have no clue what's happening because there's so many conflicting signals. I'm curious to hear. What's been the feedback among those traders you, that you speak with? Is there a degree of confidence? Are people confused? What's sort of the broader sentiment that you've seen across the trader community? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think the investors are beating the traders out this year because the volatility is really picked up. And it, it given the geopolitical landscape and, and given what the Fed is up to, and, and especially with the uh, the bills that are still uh, on the table in Washington, um, I, I think volatility, at least for the rest of this year, is, is here to stay. Uh, and a, a lot of guys are getting beat up pretty badly. Not um, not that they're not making money, but you know, yesterday I think was a great example. After we saw the jobs data and the market sold off, the first guy who came on to me was like, "I'm selling risk," and I was like, "Please, not here." <laughs> This is going to go. This is going to end up in the green. This is a Friday. People are going to cover and going into a weekend. I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing that I do and, and speak with traders. Obviously, I'm not right every day, or I'd still be doing it. Um, but I think I think that volatility's hurt a lot of people, and uh, the investors in the long run uh, are, are making a, a better go of it. And I expect that that's going to continue. Uh, going into, especially into the fourth quarter. The interesting thing about that is that I think the the real frustration you mentioned the trader talking about reducing risk and the issue is that uh if you reduce risk and you position into the areas which tend to benefit from uh, higher volatility like treasuries in particular uh it seems to look like equities right so it's almost like all risk is correlated some way in in a way that which is not normal in in historical tail events no, yeah, and I'll uh, I'll share something with everyone, and you know, all correlations eventually break, but this one's still going. I think it was somewhere in mid March that I kind of tripped over this. Better lucky than good. This is my career in trading. I've always taken that. Um, there's been a very good inverse correlation between the S and P 500 and the dollar. And uh, the dollar I look at is the Bloomberg Dollar Index, uh, simply because it's broader. It covers more currencies. And it's been a really good crutch to lean on from a a, a trader standpoint who, as you mentioned, really maybe even one or two day time horizon, if not one or two hour time horizon. Um, If one moves and the other doesn't, there's a reasonable possibility the other will to catch up. Or if it doesn't, that the one that's moved higher or lower is presenting an opportunity to fade that last move. So inevitably, the two seem to continue to sync up. Uh, I expect at some point, like all, it's going to break down. Um, but that volatility, yes, you mentioned it, treasuries as well. It's the same It's the same exact thing. I mean, you, you look at the way the, the two-year and even, even probably more so the 10-year has traded, you know, 80 basis points off the highs in almost what feels like a blink of an eye. Um, not what fixed income traders are accustomed to at all. Right. And that's so let's, let's go with that on the currency side because you mentioned the, the experience on the currency end. And this is one of those really strange 
dynamics where the dollar has been strengthening for a while now, right? You really talk about, I think, February, March of, of last year. And I've made this argument before that you often tend to see signs of potentially a sovereign debt crisis first through currency movement. Um, I've had a lot of different guests on these spaces, and many will make the argument that this move in the dollar has been justified. But it seems inconsistent given inflation and given this narrative out there that there's so many dollars, but it seems like there's not enough uh, to go around for uh, everybody else. It's the dollar's been a conundrum, and that's because when you, I think at this point, when you look around the world, um, it, it gets really, really hard to see where you want to be. So just stick for the G10 space for the moment. Um, the Swiss market's not really big enough uh, to give you too much opportunity, and the Swiss National Bank has a tendency to spank people uh, pretty badly on occasion. Uh, I've been on the wrong end of that. It, not a lot of fun. Um, yen is a really tough place to be right now for, for two reasons. Really being, uh, really being the 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 tail the tail being wagged by the interest rate dog, uh, where treasuries go, and and the volatility in treasuries has been has been tearing up the yen, and also now the geopolitical risk with China and Taiwan. If something untoward would happen, uh, you don't really want to be invested in Asia because it's impossible to know what that could turn into. And then you have the situation in Europe. Ukraine isn't going away. There's strong speculation that uh, Putin wants to continue this into the winter and then really squeeze the Europeans. Uh, and I think the euro especially is someplace you don't want to be. And typically, I would say as a, a former trader and in the rate space with the Bank of England raising rates, that would be a, an alternative. Um, but they've got a really importing, really fierce inflation. And they are... Uh, they are still in the Brexit situation. They haven't sorted out their trade situation. And they have all the G7 countries, um, maybe with the exception of oil with the Japanese yen, they import inflation. Uh, and it means uh, it affects them much more than many others. And given where the supply demand situation still is, I'm not comfortable yet being in the UK and being in sterling and being in, in gilts just yet. I think there's more to go. But inevitably, um, I, I think the UK bond market is, is going to present a nice opportunity um, at some point because the, their rates could easily outpace where the Fed is. Okay, so, so and, and this is an important point, I think, for the audience to, to explain sort of the link between currency movement and the direction of inflationary pressure, right? So in other words, weaker currency is a way of importing inflation, stronger currency is a way of exporting inflation. Now, what's kind of interesting about the dollar and commodities here is that commodities have been incredibly strong with the dollar very strong. And I'm, I'm fairly certain that's a relatively rare dynamic. Yeah. I, I mean, typically um, that is an inverse relationship with oil um, and the metals, for instance, um, and, and some of the soft commodities usually see that, that relationship um, going in opposite directions. But this post pandemic geopolitical situation has really caught, uh, really created a situation that we've obviously never seen. And that's why I always push back when people say this is 1970s inflation. It's, it's nowhere close. Um, you know, I'm old enough to remember being on the gas lines with the odd even license plates back then. And unfortunately, my car got 11 miles to the gallon. So <laughs> I was on those lines quite often. Um, there's the, the, the inflation that we had in the 70s and how that uh, weakens a currency, for instance. So 
Runaway inflation is not good for currencies. You get that impression that it might be because rates go higher, but the inflation eats up your rate of return. So if you have modest inflation and a spread between inflation and rates, so you have a real return, it's really positive for a currency. We we saw that with the dollar um, and, and periods in the 90s. And then if you look at the same period in the 90s with sterling and when um, Soros took it to the Bank of England, you had a situation where the, the currency uh, was under so much pressure, the real rate of return didn't exist. And even though the Bank of England put rates up to historically high levels, they could not defend the pound. So the, the difficulty comes in when you look at a rates and a currency. It's really just one part of, of what moves the currency, and it's also one part of what moves the the fixed income market. There are so many other things that come into FX and what moves a currency that you know, we've often said to people, uh, you know, when I was when I was on a proper uh, major desk, I, I worked at Chemical, which is basically now J.P. Morgan. You know, there were times you could come in on a Monday and tell people the reason why the dollar is up is X. And it, no, I know it sounds astounding, but on Tuesday, you could come in and tell people the dollar is down for the same exact reason, because there are so many other p- things that are playing into it. And I, I've seen stats on this. So I'm sure you, you probably have to, if not done the work on this, but that, you know, certain, you can equate a certain percentage appreciation in the dollar to uh, a certain number of basis point hike equivalent, right? The dollar itself mm-hmm. does some of the work that the Federal Reserve does, which is interesting because that would suggest there's been a, a hell of a lot more tightening of financial conditions just because of currency movement than than Powell's movement. Yeah. So, you know, the back of the envelope math and, and talk about this with rates traders and such is, if I could remember this correctly, I, I think it's something about a 10 big figure move in a currency equates to, it's, it might even be a four big figure move in a currency equates to 25 basis points in central bank change, either up and down. So you, know, you look at a situation where the euro went from 120 to par, um, and that 20 big figures, you know, amounted to uh, 125 basis points of, of increased, if you would, inflation that Europe is now importing because of a weaker currency. And so those are things that a, a central bank um, has always been, I don't want to say impotent to be able to deal with, but really difficult to deal with. You know, there's there's been countless devaluations of currencies over the years, simply because as soon as the markets smell blood, they just go for it. And it's incredibly difficult for the central bank by itself, just one, unless you have a coordinated intervention, which is multiple central banks or multiple treasury departments uh, coming in to support one or two currencies combined because it generally benefits the group. In and of itself, as you mentioned, that's a really good point. A lot of people don't know this. That the currency movement does equate to the equivalent of interest rate changes, and yet it's also something difficult for central banks to comprehend and, and to be able to deal with them. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. 
Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, that's going to have a lot of interesting implications on whatever the ECB does going forward. So we'll, we'll hit on that in a second. So um, I do agree with you, first of all, the fixed income market, um, for all of my experience, they were the smarter guys in the room. I think what you're seeing, and then you bring up a well, real... Well, you, you, say, you said oh. were, which is interesting. Is, 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 I don't know if that was a slip of oh. time. But... Okay. So I think what we're seeing in the markets, and I, and I do think right now... Um, I, I, I do, with all respect to the fixed income guys, I do think the treasury market right now has it right, and I think the Fed has it wrong. When you talk about that inversion, and this is a good point, why people people are thinking about this as a precursor to recession, and it's very possible that that is the case. But I think um, more so, and if the recession comes, the recession comes, but this is more of a situation where uh, treasury markets and traders just don't believe the story the Fed's telling them, or central banks in, in general are telling them. They have to keep the two-year part of the curve and shorter, close to where the Fed funds rate is. They don't want to create an arbitrage in that situation um, where you have negative carry on your position. But when you look at the longer end, um, and as you mentioned, the 20s, the 10s, out to 30s, um, basically anything past five years, I think, um, you're looking at fixed income traders that are betting that these interest rate hikes are a short-term phenomenon. And that's why you have the inversion of the curve. Nobody thinks the Fed is going to go to the places where they say they're going. The Bank of England the other day was talking about something like 13%, I think. Um, you know, the, the, the central banks, in, in my opinion, and I'll just concentrate on the Fed because I know that one better than the others, there was clearly a policy error, and they've all admitted it about the transient inflation story. So now you have a situation where inflation is perked up. They're chasing a bad policy mistake with what I think is another policy mistake. We're going to get inflation numbers next week. They're supposed to show inflation coming down very nicely. I think when you see a situation where you know they're trying, they've tried to curb demand, which is fine, but it takes six months for monetary policy to move its way through the economy. They're, they're going at breakneck speed and not giving prior decisions an opportunity to affect economic change, to bring that demand down to where the supply is. I, I think if they left well enough alone past September, I'd prefer actually they don't even do anything in September, but it's clearly they, they feel a credibility issue at this point is what I think it is. They're all afraid to be called Burns which was the, the disaster uh, chair of the 70s. And, you know, I, I, I think that they will come to their senses come past September because I think inflation is going to come back down sharply because, frankly, the consumer just doesn't have, um, just doesn't have the spending power. We, we had revolving credit numbers out on Friday. The credit card debt of consumers is at levels that is now above 2008. And we all know how that worked out. So I think the consumer is closer to being tapped out than people think, and I think that demand will shrink and it will match whatever imbalances are left in supply, and that's going to take the foot off the pedal for central banks everywhere, and I think the Fed will probably be the first one to see. And by the way, this whole narrative of the Fed hiking rates you know, continuously, or even the whole narrative of you know, they need to get to like an 8% or to 9% based on Taylor rule, I mean, that's nonsense because you got $30 trillion of U.S. government debt. It's a, it, it's it's remarkable to me how people don't consider the context under which 
rate hikes are occurring when your starting point is already so levered. Yeah. And, and think about the other side of that coin is you still, even after they, um, they quote unquote quantitative tighten, uh, are still going to have a $7 trillion balance sheet. So, you know, to me, the smart, the smarter move for the Fed would be to almost do a, a reverse operation twist, bring the debt into the short end or bring the balance sheet rather into the short end of the curve, which is where they belong, which is where they've always been. And, and at, let that debt roll off when it's time to take money out of the system, reinvest it when it's time to put money in the system. You know, the Fed, I looked at this the other day, I have to look at my notes, but it had a nine in front of it. Since 19, January of 1991, uh, in the Greenspan era, I'll give you three seconds to just take a guess. How many times do you think the Fed changed the Fed funds rate, either up or down? Uh, it is, uh, I don't know. It's a good question. Go ahead. Okay. 91 times. There you go. How kind of ridiculous is that, that the Fed felt they needed to do these 25% tweaks 91 times to bring monetary policy in line with the economy? Well, you, you, you said you talked to traders. Right? I mean, they're trading, they're trading rates for the economy. They're traders yeah. too, just a different way. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I just think, um, And and in fact, I think if you look at the average Fed funds rate over the same period of time, it comes in at around two and a half percent. And what people don't realize is this two percent inflation target was really a creation of Alan Greenspan. As he used to say, I get my best ideas in the bathtub. So one day he was in the bathtub and decided uh, inflation should be two percent and every central bank adopted it. And if, if you think about it in a bigger picture, suppose the economy was running fairly well with inflation at 4%. And it wasn't running out of control. There was no wage spiral. Um, Growth was solid. What is the position or what is the point of the Fed now raising rates past the inflation rate to slow an economy that's working just fine? It's really not their mandate. By the way, I noticed that some people left the space because they started picturing Greenspan in a bathtub. (laughs) It's just, just yeah, that, that image has never left me. I'm sorry to share that with you. That's, uh, that, that pretty much ruined my weekend. Let's get- but I'm, I'm hoping that the Fed sticks to their mantra, which is that they don't allow one number to alter their um, thinking. Uh, I'm afraid this one might a little bit. Well, but- I mean, the long duration side acted pretty violently on Friday. Yeah. To yeah. my chagrin. And, and the, the, the other problem with the jobs numbers, frankly, is, is everyone from... Mester on down seems to forget that uh, jobs are a lagging indicator. So I expect jobs to continue to stay strong as we come out of this pandemic cycle. We're just back at the jobs that we had prior to the pandemic. We've not really added as many jobs as the administration says. We've really just got them back. So when you look at the gains in the job numbers over the course of the last two years, we're really just getting back to where we were in, say, January of, of uh, 2020. Going forward, I would expect that to change dramatically over the next six months, and I'd expect those job numbers uh, to slow. As Mr. Goolsby said the other day, you know, we don't have that many people to keep creating 500,000 jobs every month. And without question, that's going to go down, and markets are just going to have to accept that, that perhaps 150,000 jobs created every month is, is much more normal. And I think when you get to the tail end of the cycle, we're going to see those jobs come back down, and they really shouldn't be forward guidance when they're backward looking. That's just my opinion. So, by the way, that, that's actually a good transition to something I wanted to 
have you talk through, which is labor in the context of not just jobs, but obviously the labor force participation rate, the discourage to workers and how that is is sort of complicating things. You kind of alluded to it with the 500,000 jobs there, but what's going on with the uh, labor force participation rate and why is that um, potentially sort of a, a confusing variable in thinking about the, the state of the jobs market? Yeah, typically it, it's, it's something that gives you a clue as to people seeking jobs um, and, and how much uh, the, uh, the health of the jobs market. But it's really difficult to try to get a handle on what the last two years have done to the employment base. I, I think it's just a little too soon to look back at older models to go forward and say, this is what this really means when the entire economy and the entire jobs market was thrown into into sort of a helter-skelter with the pan- pandemic. I mean, I, there are a lot of people that are just not going back to where they were. A lot of people are trying to work from home. Um, and, and I don't know that the participation rate going forward is going to give us the clear picture of health or not health of the U.S. jobs market that it did in the past. It's going to take a while um, for that to sort of play out. I, I know hopefully nobody on Bloomberg's on, but I've been working from home for two years and my my production has actually increased. Um, you know, when I do the squawk product, I can't do radio or TV because I have to leave my desk for someone to sit in my chair. I can do that from home and do those two things at once because I don't have to go anywhere. I'm doing it right from here. I think a lot of people have found that same situation. And so their ability to participate or not participate in perhaps jobs they had before or even just work part time because they found other avenues um, to make money. It's just I don't I just don't feel comfortable with it as an indicator. I mean, maybe it's me, but it, it's it's just not my favorite one to look at these days. Yeah, no, I agree. Because the, the nature of the data has changed. Like, I think is the point, right? So how do you really know if it's 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 not even garbage in, garbage out? It's almost a different, it's different type of data. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. It's hard to compare it to a right. prior year. I mean, I've argued for years um, when every Fed forecaster and such, um, you know, when you talk about the Taylor rule, and uh, I can't think of the other one off the top of my head, which is my favorite, which is long since dead. Um, these things have never actually applied to reality. And and so until we get to back to a more normal situation, I, I think a lot of the models that people are looking at now really have to be rethought and rejiggered a little bit because I don't know that they speak to the future as much as they speak to the past, and that's not going to be very helpful. Um, I think they should be. Uh, do I think they're accurately in there? No. Um, it's the same way, you know, if you look at, this is probably a bad analogy, but when you sort of look at the positivity of, of COVID, we don't count the people who take the test at home and never go to a public place to be registered. I think there are a lot of people in an underground economy now um, that uh, much more so than in the past are quote unquote, potentially working off the books, potentially working um, 
part-time and then part-time in a different sort of cash-like situation um, that aren't being counted. And um, as far as whether we're in a recession or not, I'm going to have to stick to the point where unless they change what it says in the textbooks, um, that we are in a technical recession, does it feel the same way? No, because we're in a different situation. Will it continue going forward? I can tell you that if the Fed continues doing what they're doing, inevitably it'll happen. If you look at uh, the last 50 years, and I actually did a blog post on this Friday, a trader gave me this line, so I had to steal it. Um, The only soft landing we've had in the economy in the last 50 years was Sully on the Hudson River. Um, Every single economic cycle, when the Fed hiked aggressively, a recession followed. Now, the good news after that recession, we saw a really robust positive equity and bond market, and generally speaking, a robust and positive and healthy economic environment outside of the early 80s with the inflation scenario. So I almost hope we're in a recession because I feel like the sooner the Fed gets us there, the faster we'll get out and the better off everybody's going to be. But I will say that when you look at uh, overlaps of recessions and where the S&P is relative to its 200-day moving average, usually when you're below a 200-day moving average, you're in a recession, even if the NBER hasn't formally announced it. So there are market indicators that would suggest you're you're pretty much there, maybe have been there for, for a while outside of the technical you know, negative two quarters. Although it's interesting because I had Lakshman uh, Achuthan uh, a couple of days ago, and his point was that, well, really a recession is not two negative GDP quarters. It's a prolonged period of you know, deceleration. He had a, a very specific way of, of framing it that left room for some degree of interpretation. But practically speaking, whether it's recession or not, it doesn't matter. What matters is price movement. Yeah, and it, exactly correct. It's, it is totally what price movement is. And I think, you know, if you, it, it depends on, on, you know, who you speak to. You get somebody like Fed President Daly who says, I'm not feeling it. Everything's fine. You're probably in the 1% of the income bracket. So you're not going to feel it. But the individual, um, you know, the, the people in the grocery stores who are paycheck to paycheck, um, that move in gasoline prices in, 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 is felt. And I think we're going to feel it even more when we get into home heating in the winter, both here and in Europe. So if we're not in a recession now, wouldn't surprise me if we trip into one as we go into the end of this year. But I personally think that's positive for risk. Um, I, I think what has really hurt risk over the last couple of months is when the Fed first um, sort of pointed to the fact um, that they were going to begin a a hiking cycle. Um, I think once they get to the point where they stop, uh, barring any geopolitical risk, which there's tons of it out there still, um, if that sort of settles it and the Fed backs off a little bit, I, I think the economy can come out of it extremely, extremely well. But we need to look at the U.S. consumer. As I said, the revolving credit cycle is really high. If you look at the savings rate, everyone keeps saying the balance sheet of consumers is great. It really isn't. Um, Savings is back to below pre-pandemic or at pre-pandemic levels. So all that stimulus has been either spent or what have you. It's certainly not saved any longer. It looks like the consumer's tapped out when it comes to credit card debt. Um, And you know, where they're going to go next is going to be interesting. One uh, really smart guy um, a couple of weeks ago told me that the next major indicator to see where the economy is going is to look at auto loan defaults because people need their cars, no matter how little money is coming in to get to whatever job they have. 
And so they'll skip a mortgage payment or a rent payment before they'll skip a car payment because it takes a long time to kick somebody out of their house. It doesn't take a long time to repossess a vehicle. So that might be the next canary in the coal mine if that should start rearing its head. You know, I, I don't watch that as closely as maybe people, other people do. I, um, and again, goes back to what I was saying before. I don't know that certain indicators of uncertain models of recession going forward are as, uh, as good or, or as helpful as they may have been in the past because things have just been screwed up. Um, it, it's very, very likely that that has always been the perfect indicator of recession because if you look at it from uh, history's standpoint, whenever you've seen an inversion in the short end of the curve to the back end of the curve, it's occurred for two reasons. Um, one of the primary reasons back before the euro was um, when countries were trying to uh, defend their currency. And so they raise rates in the short end to try to make it very, very difficult to borrow. And then the curve would, would uh, invert and would stay that way either till a devaluation would happen or the central banks beat up the markets. I think in this situation, back to what we were saying before, I think the inversion is more to do with, with all due respect to Mr. Powell and the FOMC, the markets not feeling that this Fed is that credible. I think they really, really believe that this Fed will not be able to raise rates to the levels they think they will say. And in the long run, um, that won't be the case. And I think if you look at sentiment indicators, um, past the one year, they seem to be declining. And, and I think the consumers basically agreeing with the market to, to a certain extent that, you know, past this year, I mean, market, I believe, is still pricing in cuts for 2023. Uh, that past this year, that people just don't feel either traders or consumers um, that rates uh, that rates can stay this high, and that the rate of inflation will stay this high, because they don't feel the um, they don't feel the economy is going to be that strong, and that may very well cause a recession because of that sentiment, and may make that indicator one hundred percent correct. And and more times than not, in the past, that that was the reason. Um, but I'm a little reluctant to bet on it simply because of that. I think it actually might be more. A chance that it causes a recession than it is actually the reason for it. I would add to that also that I think this is also important when people talk about signals, just because, you know, an inversion historically tends to precede a recession. It doesn't mean that every recession needs an inversion. I mean, Japan's a good example of that. I mean, Japan's had, you know, several recessions without any inversion. So, you know, there's always going to be these kind of false signals. It's just like when I frame lumber relative to gold or utilities against the market as a historical indicator. Usually prior to major crashes, corrections, bear markets, those areas will warn you in advance. Lumber's weak relative to gold. Utilities are strong relative to markets. But that doesn't mean that if lumber is weak, it's guaranteed that you're going to have a crash. It's that when you have a crash, lumber tends to already be weak because of that that tie to housing. Now, on that point, let's talk about housing for a moment, Vincent, because there is this um, divergence, which is, I think, pretty remarkable happening here in terms of uh, equity market movement and lumber prices. And I've made the argument for a few months here that housing is just getting started in terms of its own deceleration or bear market. And you know maybe the equity markets are not forecasting how that could be a big headwind going forward. How do you how do you view the interplay of of real estate and housing and you know uh, affordability there to 
risk sentiment for equities. I, and so I think that's a really good point that you bring up both in the lumber sense and in the housing market, because, you know, realistically, the average consumer sees their wealth in their equity in their home. The majority of folks in this country are not necessarily vested outside of their um, pension funds, perhaps, uh, in the equity market. So they feel it more when they see prices go up and down um, for their home. Now, about a year or so ago, and throughout the pandemic, it was insane here in Westchester County, where I live. Um, People were paying above ask multiple offers, um, like crazy above ask. And um, there wasn't a lot of inventory. And so that complicated the situation as well. And so there was a real feel good about the housing market and a real feel good about risk markets, including equities in general. That's beginning to slow when you make a good point about uh, lumber prices, um, that you know it, it is a decent correlation to uh, where the housing market goes, or at least the pricing of housing, simply because the cost of input affects the cost of output. Um, one aside that I'll note, we had lumber prices were down on Friday by 4.5% uh, because the U.S. dropped some tariffs on Canadian lumber, and they may be doing so some more. That was from the National Association of Home Builders. When you talk to the home builders, um, basically what they're saying is they expect real estate to hold its own, but only go up small like 2 3% a year. They're not expecting a collapse, but they're expecting the market to come back to equilibrium as demand is, is sort of sated, if you will, and that more and more inventory comes on. And that, that takes time. Um, you know, there's, there's still a big gap between the starter home and affordability for younger people. Um, and it, it, it it's a it's a big problem when you when you look at um, there was a time when a starter home was one hundred and fifty to two hundred and fifty thousand in the Northeast and now I think it's probably between three and four hundred thousand um, and it's it with the jump we've seen in mortgage rates and we've definitely seen uh, the housing market uh, slow and a lot of it that's also going to depend on the Fed just not inputs of commodity prices how far the Fed goes how far they push up rates how much they cost of borrowing. I know from some friends who are real estate agents that deals have cratered um, over the last uh, four months or so because the move up in interest rates, when they got to the table, it increased the monthly mortgage payment for some people um, beyond their capacity. And basically, the banks were just pulling back or the or the buyers were pulling back. So there's always that um, uh, out when you do to close a real estate deal. If you can't get a mortgage, no one can hold you to it. And both sides are sort of having difficulty getting mortgages. The banks are having more difficulty lending uh, because the consumers are just not as credible and the consumer can't borrow because they don't have the disposable income to meet the payments. So I I think in the long run, um, real estate will hold. um, And I think it will not weigh on the equity market. But that remains to be seen. So this goes back to to Joe Bowen's Bowen's, uh, discussion around treasuries and the long duration side, because if you have weakening housing, that should be bullish for long duration price lowering of yield because 30 year mortgage rates, the demand for money drops if housing is not going to be as appealing or affordable, right? So that should result in the cost of capital on the long end uh, responding, which I think partially explains the the move off of the low in price top in yield that's happened intraday June 16th, which I've noted before was the same day that U.S. small caps bottomed. So in other words, June 16th, intraday, both treasuries and stocks bottomed at, at the same day, uh, which I think is 
it's interesting, although maybe to be expected, just because they both sold off, so it kind of makes sense that they'd both have a relief rally. Now the question then becomes, and I want to hear your thoughts on this point, Vincent, that um, I've I've been talking about this a lot as sort of, and I've shared in the top of the, the, the space here something I've, a lot of people have already seen, but this point that what we saw this year was very abnormal in that usually when you have a big drawdown in equities, treasuries actually benefit. Correct. Instead, treasuries looked like equities, meaning the drawdowns were wildly correlated, right? Which is unequivocally factually a historical anomaly. The question I'm where I'm going with this is, um, I've had some people say to me that you know uh, this would suggest that because you're in an inflationary recession, the relationship of treasuries to stocks, treasuries as a hedge, is broken. What are your thoughts on this idea that treasuries uh, may or may not be a safe haven again? No, I, I don't think it's broken. I think, um, I, I mean, it, it's been dinged uh, primarily because of the the what we've seen in the last two years in the markets in terms of the gyrations of enormous fiscal stimulus uh, to to meet the pandemic, um, a, a Fed missing uh, a rate cycle, uh, too much money sloshing around. There's, st- there's still too much liquidity. Uh, out there, which I think in the long run is going to be positive for treasuries. I think that the trade going into 2023 for me, and it's still too soon because the Fed's uh, not there yet, is going to be that that uh, reversion, um, that if the equity market uh, does go down, the treasury market will be a good place to be. And I think it'd be the great place to be is inside five years, and especially the two years. Because if the economy rolls over, the Fed's just not going to stay at pace. And the reason why we're looking at a 3% two and five year is because the Fed is expecting to raise rates towards three and a half, maybe even 4%, as Mester had said on Friday. So you simply can't have a two year or a five year yield if you're looking at a 4% overnight rate. But I don't think personally that, that we're going to actually see it that high. We may see it there temporarily after September. But if the economy rolls over, which at least the pricing out on the curve shows you, um, the short end can't stay there. And and so that inversion will go away. Um, the short end of the bond market is, is going to be probably a very good investment, a good place to be. Um, and at least in the short term, I think it'll be good for the equity market because they'll see rates coming off. You know, those correlations, as we said before, about where the dollar is with the equity market, that's going to break down and it's no longer going to be helpful. And this correlation, which did break down, will eventually revert. It's, it's always a matter of timing. It's, it's impossible to pick the exact time. Um, you know, how long can you stay in a trade and lose money uh, until it comes back is, is always the bottom line. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think the economy is, has changed through this pandemic so drastically that we're going to throw away uh, that historical correlation. It's going to be difficult in the short term to use, as we said, the participation rate maybe to gauge jobs. But inevitably, that's going to come back as well as things get closer to normal. But normal's still far away. No, and, and it's really around that that causation. I've had so many people say to me, you know, oh, you should be uh, doing less of these spaces or tweeting less and re-optimize your approach. And my response is, wh- why would you re-optimize when you're in what is clearly an anomaly? And even if you were to re-optimize based on the anomaly, you're making the assumption the anomaly persists and that causation is broken. I think this is why a lot of traders, to your point earlier, have been having such a hard time because you have some kind of research, some kind of indicator, some kind of approach that historically, more often than not, on average, quote unquote, works. 
right? And you're in a period here where a lot of things are not working, a lot of things are desynced, and people say, well, then you should change your approach. But that seems like a bizarre way of approaching uh, tomorrow because, that, again, that assumes that it's going to persist tomorrow. It may not. No, it, it, it may not. I mean, you, you, you know, when you talk about correlations, you had mentioned earlier the dollar and commodities. Well, you know, oil prices are up and the dollar is up because of the situation, at least, um, you know, let, let's face it, we, we, we did have a situation where we pulled back on domestic production drastically. Uh, and so there's a great deal of uh, investment pulled back because we're expecting to be out of fossil fuel by 2030, which is nowhere near going to happen. Uh, we obviously had the situation with Ukraine. Uh, which is hurt oil prices, but WTIs come from one tenish down to below ninety. Um, that is not an indicator of of inflation and an expectation that the economy is going to grow rapidly in the next six months. There's a side of that oil uh, calculation which is demand. It's not just supply, and clearly markets are seeing demand drop or expecting it to drop drastically to bring that price down dramatically. I don't see us going back to $100 WTI unless Russia just turns everything off. Um, and I don't think that we're in that situation geopolitically. Um, you know, the, the, as you go forward, you know, the price of oil may hold up because you know, when you start to parse your disposable income, and if you're in the lower income group, well, you obviously have to heat your home in the winter, and you could do away with, you know, getting your hair done for argument's sake, just to be make a silly comment. Um, but at, at some point, if you you can't look at that commodity and say it's all supply side driven, and if it isn't all supply side driven, clearly oil traders are telling you their expectation for robust growth for the next six months is not that great. Yeah, and I will say that kind of goes back to that June sixteenth point. It's I don't find it. A coincidence that oil peaks about a week, week and a half before the June 16th low in treasuries and stocks. I don't find a coincidence that uh, energy stocks peaked before that June 16th low. I shared in the tweet this this point. Every time I hear this line that the Fed has inflation under control, my response is it's not the Fed has inflation under control. It's oil has inflation under control. Because talking about correlations and causations, break-evens are very tied to the movement of oil. It's not, it's not an opinion. This is just historically – you look at tips relative to nominal – they pr- it, that's pretty much your way of seeing what oil prices are doing and vice versa. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, again, you talk about correlations. I think the correlation, um, uh, like the in, with the inverse correlation that we saw with the dollar and commodities is probably going to be dead for a little while longer because if you see oil prices come down, it wouldn't surprise me even a little if the dollar came down also because you'd be seeing this um, move into risk, you know, away from uh, haven, if you will, which is what the dollar has been. When you talked before about treasuries underperforming, I, I think part of that underperformance is because the dollar has been such a, a, a good place to hide for for a haven um, and has maybe taken stolen some of the thunder from the treasury market. But I don't expect that to persist. I, I, at some point when the world you know, turns itself right again and, and risk is trading in a more normal space, you, you're going to see uh, the treasury market be attractive again, the equity market be very attractive again. And it will the dollar won't be necessary as a place to hide. And, and maybe that's a great indicator to look at going into 2023, that if the dollar turns, that's the all clear signal to, to seriously get back into risk. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. And I think if we had history as we've seen it, uh, and without the last three years kind of mucking things up, uh, you, your analysis would be bang on. What what I'm seeing, and, and so, um, again, I'm going back to the demand side of this equation and not the supply side so much. Uh, I, everything I look at at the U.S. consumer, uh, and this is the average consumer, not obviously the well-to-do, um, you know, average hourly earnings are up 5%, but inflation is running 9%. Uh, the savings rates back down to where it was before. Revolving credit is probably at its highest level that we've ever seen. Um, it, it seems to me, you know, Christmas spending taken out of the equation, that the next four or five months, the consumer is not going to be driving this economy as we have seen the consumer do so and need the consumer to do so. So my my expectation from the inflation standpoint is not so much being driven by the fact that prices are high and, and energy is obviously a significant component. It's nice to see the Fed coming back to CPI and getting away from PCE, by the way, um, and that real real people have actually have to worry about food and energy prices. Um, I think those things are coming back, and, and food prices actually is just another point. Uh, one of the things that's even been more significant than energy prices in the last maybe six months to 12 months in terms of inflation has been the rate of change in food prices. That's starting to moderate also. Things are getting a little bit better in that front. So my, my feel is that it, that equilibrium is going to come back, maybe not as fast as the Fed would like it. And I'd be sad to see them be so in a hurry to bring it back to equilibrium because I just really, really feel it's going to come back by itself. That's all. And, and that, that the Fed, at least in my opinion, is once again on the verge of making a very big policy mistake. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Medical equipment is another big thing from Germany. And then we don't we have no idea what's going on in China conducting um, military exercises this weekend, which are mimicking attacks on the main island in, of Taiwan. Um, I would seriously hope and, 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 and expect that, um, you know, no one's going to do something silly uh, in the South China Seas and, and in the, the Strait for Taiwan. But there are so many things that could disrupt the status quo and cause that supply chain uh, to, again, become even a bigger worry than it was during the pandemic. I mean, we're uh, in, in terms of, of being equal with supply and demand. My, my only point to that or the point that I'm sort of hanging my head on is not so much that the supply chain is going to uh, get back to normal as quickly, um, but that demand is going to drop to match it or, or get closer to equilibrium and take the pressure off inflation. But if something happens to disrupt the supply chain and the geopolitical risk is enormous in that space, um, then all bets are off because then we're back to maybe even a worse place than from an inflation standpoint than we were before. Let's do, uh, yeah, let's do, that's right. And let's do two more questions. And by the way, everybody that's asked questions, I do appreciate uh, each one of you coming up and, and helping and engaging. I think that's what's so great about these kind of conversations. And please, again, everybody in the space, <clears throat> make sure you follow Vincent on Twitter. My, my hope and my belief is the recession will be somewhat shallow. And, um, you know, two, three quarters and not significant in terms of uh, lower GDP, um, simply because I think the Fed will back off considerably and it's an election year. Um, so we'll probably see a fiscal response that we probably don't need to see, but we will see. Um, you know, just, <coughs> Stop inflation. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> yeah. Sorry. 
Yeah, I'm going to throw out all my textbooks when people tell me if you increase fiscal policy, fiscal spending, that that negates inflation. Um, I, I, I'm hoping very much that I'm right and that we'll see um, a, a relatively shallow uh, recession because of the um, where we had come from, that there was a huge cash infusion from the fiscal government, that a lot of spending um, has been done. Um, I, you know, you don't see a, a, an entire economy having to rush out tomorrow and increase uh, durable goods spending because they probably had done a fair amount of that during the pandemic. So fingers crossed it's a shallow one. How we come out of it on the back end is going to be quite interesting and how long it takes is going to be interesting. So I'm, I'm, this is a great there. question because that it, this has been bothering me too. Because and, and that relates to the earlier. I don't, I don't recall if you were here or not, uh, Grayson. But this point that so if the dollar does roll over, you've had commodities strong in the face of very strong dollar, which is historically abnormal. Then if you suddenly have the dollar weaken, well, that's actually supportive for commodities. You make a you make a very good point. I am actually in your camp. I think the dollar. I I unfortunately thought the dollar peaked about sixty days ago, so I was a little ahead of myself. Um, but I think we're very much nearing a point where the dollar is going to roll over for a variety of reasons. Now, what that does to inflation is really going to be interesting. It isn't by itself um, necessarily going to increase inflation substantially, depending upon what the other inputs are. One of the first things that you're going to see is large cap equities rally considerably, because I know as I've covered these people, they don't hedge. And, and so you're seeing all these losses uh, or reductions, I should say, in, in earnings estimates from large corporations and all blaming losses in FX because they don't hedge. Now, they're probably not going to change their tune any time forward because they're all going to sit there and basically wait for the dollar to turn over. But when it does, it's going to add a considerable amount of weight, I think, to the equity market. Um, and that return to risk and, and some inflation um, – Hopefully, we'll bring us back to a, a supply side balance of things because there'll be more earnings to create more supply, uh, and the minimal the dollar's impact on inflation won't be as dramatic um, as say what it could be in typical times. Again, that's that's it's kind of a roll of the dice to be perfectly honest with you, but um, because it's just not the only component, the other things have to fall into play. Um, but I do agree with you. I think I think the dollar's uh, definitely run its course. Um, it's um, it's been going up again, as I think more uh, in many ways as a haven rush, uh, both toward inflation, both toward not being able to get into equities, not really feeling it in the bond market because of the sell-off. Uh, inevitably, I think those correlations will revert, and I think we'll see a lower dollar. How it impacts commodity prices, if it's drastic, then it's a problem. Uh, if it's moderate, then I think we're going to be just fine. Without question, absolutely. You, the you know, I, I tell that to people all the time. You want to just say it's a strong dollar. It's actually very much a result result of weak G seven peers and also emerging markets. You know, when you get higher inflation, uh, EM is not the best place in the world to be. It it puts a lot of pressure on their economies, um, and you, the the movements that you look at, for instance, the Chilean peso above nine hundred. Um, and, and where the Brazilian Rei now is at, you know, five and change. I, I remember when I was at Santander, just a quick story. Um, 
um, a, a company in the U.S. was buying a company in Brazil, and they were buying Brazilian Rei at around 150, 160. And we begged them to hedge, and they refused to. And that later company uh, was acquired by another company because they lost so much money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, and again, everybody here, please make sure you follow Vincent. I think this is a, a phenomenal conversation. Hopefully, Vincent, you and I will uh, get together again, not at yeah. a conference. Hopefully, <laughs> whatever it was eight years ago. But uh, again, everybody, please make sure you follow Vincent. Uh, real pleasure, Vincent. I'm glad we did this. My and pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, and everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.